We good? Oh, excellent. Well, good evening, everyone, and uh, welcome to our auditorium Bible class tonight. Good to see everybody, and uh, we're continuing in our study, Survey of the Old Testament, which we'll get into here a little bit in just a moment. Survey of the Old Testament, and looking at um, an overview, of the, as they often say, the 30,000-foot view of uh, what the Old Testament's about, and we're uh, at the halfway point for sure, maybe a little beyond the halfway point. And uh, looking forward to getting into that with you this evening. Of course, the Middle East is in the news every moment of the day, some, on some channel for sure. And the last time we were here, we were talking about how Israel, as we know it today, the Gaza Strip in such a preeminent place of the news right now, is really dated back to ancient times. Gaza was the city of the Philistines um, during... Um, during the uh, time of the judges and the kings and chronicles, which we'll look at, to which we'll look at tonight. And so to understand some of that, some of that history, I think is valuable. Uh, I do plan, as we, after we finish, I'm saving one last, our last uh, night together in November, to talk about the history of the Arabs and the Jews uh, from Bible times to present. And, it, and it's, it's a perspective that you do not hear on the news. And, uh, and I think a lot of confusion results from that. And so we'll, we'll get through the Old Testament survey and then our last time together in November, uh, which is November anymore, it's next month, uh, we'll be looking at the history of the Arab-Israeli conflict and some of the important transitions that have happened in that, uh, in that time frame, beginning with the Old Testament, all the way up to current times. And uh, very relevant to help understand some of the conflict that's there and some of the location of events. Uh, you know, we hear about the Gaza Strip, but the Gaza Strip also includes, again, cities named from the time of the Philistines, including Gaza, but also uh, Ashdod uh, is another one. And uh, Ashkelon, I think, is the other one. There's five Philistine cities named in the Old Testament. And uh, those cities are part of that area we talk about and hear so much about today in the news. So, as is always true, God's Word is very relevant to the time we're living in, and understanding it uh, will help us uh, better see some of today's current events. Uh, today, we're going we're gonna to look at Israel as a nation, not only from its founding. We've spent some time doing that but also as it continues and even to the end of the biblical Israel um, in its first stage leading to the captivity. So we'll, we'll have plenty to talk about this evening as we do that. Hope you've had a great day. Enjoyed, I trust, a beautiful weekend, a nice fall weekend. We've been enjoying seeing it. And uh, anybody starting to count days down to Christmas and all those holiday events are not far away, especially when you count weeks. So it's happening in a hurry. Sure.
Sure. <laughs> yeah. Right. No, you're fine, Brother Ray. You, yeah. Right. And, and there is a biblical perspective to all of that. You're right. There, there is a biblical perspective. And that's why when we, finish, when we finish, I want to come back and address that issue because it is a very much a, a major theme that runs entirely through the Old Testament uh, about the Arab-Israeli conflict and the Arab-Israeli wars that were in existence even in the Old Testament times, and the, pro- the prophetic part of that equation. Now, I'm, I, we don't have time, and I'm not the person necessarily to do it, but to address all the prophetic issues, but we do know the Bible talks about, and you have to go to, to Ezekiel, particularly chapters 38 to 42, where it talks about the alliances involving the nations of the east, China particularly, and the nations of the north, Gog and Magog, which would be Russia. And so uh, we're not surprised by that. If you know some of biblical prophecy, it's there. And God is setting a stage for some things to happen, for sure. So, um, you know, we watch from human, limited human perspective, don't we, at all times. But it uh, causes us to exercise our faith even more, to watch the news with a certain sense of anticipation that God is putting things together. And much of this, has, and many of us here have been in the Scriptures and heard it preached, the, prof- the prophetic uh, realities of what the Middle East have. But... I think it's important, the prophetic part of it is, a, and I know we're a little bit of a rabbit trail, but that's okay. The prophetic part of it is certainly an important part of it, but I want to approach it from the historical part of it and talk about going back to the, the conflict itself, where it originates, what the conflict is evidenced in the Old Testament, and how it's portrayed since then, because there's lots of other elements that have been added to it, including Islam, not the least of which is important in that discussion, and we'll bring that. So we're going to look at some historical. While we're doing the survey, once we finish the survey, we'll spend at least one night talking about the Arab-Israeli conflict historically and maybe try to bring in a couple of those prophetic notions that, uh, that overshadow that discussion too. But all good. And we welcome Brother Ray back. He has been traveling. He's been over in Europe. And so we welcome you back. Glad you're safe. Sure. And rightfully so. It's an important part of the world. Well, you're very well. We also welcome back uh, Clyde Jones. Mr. Jones, it's so good to have you back. I know he's been out with some medical issues and health things, and so we're glad to have you back too, sir. 
Well, it's that time of year. Uh, lots of things are happening for sure, and the world is a, uh, you know, Brother Ray used the technical term crazy place, and I think that's probably a, a pretty good synopsis of it in some ways for sure. But uh, we, don't, we, don't, um, we don't see these things without a, a bit of a biblical uh, thought overshadowing us and overshadowing our prayers, and, and uh, so we'll, we'll look forward to hopefully learning some more tonight to help us with that. I'll remind you of some things coming up with church. We'll be back here, of course, Wednesday evening. And uh, if all goes as planned, I'll, I'm, I'm going to speak Wednesday evening. Uh, October's Bible Month. We've had a great Bible conference that started last week and finished on Wednesday. Um, and uh, Bible's kind of been the emphasis. We have some new literature out. Uh, some of it even out since you were here this morning. If you were here this morning, some of it's out in the lobby. Uh, feel free to pick up some literature out there. We put it out for the purpose of people um, understanding some issues, some current topics. Uh, there's some smaller, beside the elevator, there's some smaller booklets across from the elevator on a new display we have there's some little larger booklets nothing big and intimidating to read but we think they're there and they're there for the purpose of you using so feel free to grab those or get them for someone else that you might want to share with we'll try to keep those things stocked and uh, up to date as we can with that uh, but october being bible month we're going to venture a couple of times in the next few weeks down the discussion of the history of the bible and uh, so I'm going to be speaking on that Wednesday night. I'm calling it from the, uh, from the scrolls to the printing press. And we're going to look at, and we actually have some samples of old Bible pages and some samples of Bible, uh, one sample of a Bible scroll out in the lobby. They'll be on display as part of Wednesday night. And we may leave them up through next Sunday for folks to look at. And uh, we've got um, some, some special things yet ahead as we finish out the year talking about the Bible. There's some booklets out there on the Bible. That's the reason I mentioned that also, so be sure to pick those up if they'll be helped to you. So Wednesday night service is coming Saturday. Uh, the uh, fall festival here, Saturday afternoon from 2 o'clock to 5, and we do expect lots of folks. Help us as you can, if you can volunteer to help somehow, or uh, certainly help us by inviting folks and getting on social media and letting folks know. Uh, we expect a good crowd here, and we've got lots of uh, busyness to do this week getting ready for that, too. Again, I appreciate your prayers for my recovery from, from surgeries in the last couple of months, last few months, and uh, things are going well. I'm still tied to this arm sling for a while, at least till the end of the month, and uh, still going through therapy, and I'll probably be doing that through the end of the year, so uh, hopefully getting back to some, some uh, sense of normality for me anyway, but it is improving, and thank you for your prayers and your kindness and asking. Uh, just got to get through the process, and uh, some of you have been there and done that, so I'm looking, looking forward to the weeks ahead to see things improve. Well, let's pray as we start our evening and uh, look at our time as we'll jump out right back into our study on the survey of the Old Testament. Father, we do come tonight to, with grateful hearts. We've been blessed. We are a blessed people living at a blessed time in many ways. Uh, we have so much to be thankful for individually and as families, as a church body. Uh, we're thankful for your blessings. We're thankful for your word. It gives us comfort during challenging times. It gives us perspective uh, in all times of our own lives and of things around us. And I pray that you will allow us to uh, process your word into our thoughts and into our prayers. And uh, as we look at the world events, we know that there is a greater uh, purpose and work that's being done, that you're setting a stage for events uh, that will uh, precipitate in the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, while we don't know what tomorrow holds, we are thankful that we know with confidence that you will take tomorrow and make it into what it needs to be. Uh, we come to pray for your, your calmness and your, your assurance in challenging times for us. We pray for the multitudes of people in these in, in, impacted areas of Israel and surrounding the Middle East there. 
Uh, we know that they're innocent lives. We pray your protection upon them. We know there are many serving in missions and in churches. We pray that you'll provide opportunities for them to minister continually and to provide perspective from your word and to comfort those that they come in contact with. We pray for the political leaders of, of Israel and for our country that are seeking solutions to challenging and difficult situations. And we pray that you'll provide wisdom for them. And we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Uh, your word calls us to that, but it reminds us that there's always going to be those who are enemies to the gospel and to the truth. And I pray that you will uh, show yourself strong and mighty on the behalf of those situations. Uh, we pray that you'll bless our time this, this evening for a few moments as we look into your word and, and get some perspective to historical events to help us understand current day events and ask that you'll be honored through our time. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, we come tonight to our time to look at the Old Testament survey. So let me catch up a little bit. I kind of call it the half step backwards. Uh, we've looked at the Bible from Genesis, you know, the first five books of Pentateuch. So we've got Genesis, the accounts of creation, and the origin of everything, particularly the history of the world, the universal history from chapters 1 through 11. And then we pick up the account of Abraham, the uh, father of the uh, the blessed people that God promised would be his people, as we know today, the nation of Israel and his descendants. We pick up Abraham's story, and we follow through Genesis. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, his sons, particularly Joseph. And we finish the 50 chapters of Genesis. We then quickly turn to Exodus, uh, which is several hundred years later. Things have changed dramatically. Um, the people of Israel are now enslavement in Egypt, not because of a war, uh, but because of their remaining in the land and being put in this position due to new leadership. Exodus tells us in the opening chapter that a Pharaoh came to power who knew not Joseph nor the history of Israel. And in doing so, they found it profitable to put the Hebrews into slavery, as it were, to do all the slave labor. And that's where we're introduced also in chapter 1 to Moses. And uh, we quickly find ourselves falling into the storyline of Moses, who is used by God, of course, to eventually deliver the people from Egypt there. By the time we close the book of Exodus, the people have now left Egypt through God's mighty power and miracles. They find themselves at the foot of Mount Sinai. They've been there since Exodus chapter 19. From Exodus, we go to Leviticus, which is the book of details of the priest and the functions they should do. We go to the, it talks also about the, um, uh, the feast. Brother Lee did a tremendous job helping to explain those feasts. Uh, we also talk about the sacrifices that are a part of that in the early parts of Leviticus. Then you get to Numbers, which is the travel log. Numbers chapters 1 through 10, the people are still at the base of Mount Sinai. And they've been there for a couple of years or more getting everything prepared, learning about the tabernacle, learning about the priesthood, what God expects of them. But by the time you get into chapter 10, they're starting now to head toward the promised land. And in that travel log of numbers, they travel from Mount Sinai up the Sinai Peninsula, and they're working their way toward the promised land. They come to a place of decision in a place called Kadesh Barnea. And there they decide they, will not, they don't want to follow God anymore. The spies come back from the promised land and say, it's too impossible, we can't do this. And indeed they couldn't. But God had provided for them the testimony of Joshua and Caleb. 
Have we forgotten, basically they say, have we forgotten all the miracles, all the things that God did for us in Egypt? How can we turn our backs on him now? But indeed, the people said, no, we will not follow God. And the judgment that would come would be to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. A generation would die off who rejected God before a second and third generation would now have the opportunity to go into the promised land. We finish, out Deuteron we finish out the Pentateuch with the book of Deuteronomy, which is now the children of Israel have arrived in the, at the promised land. There across the Jordan River awaits the promised land. And Moses has final words to say to them. Deuteronomy means the second giving of the law. It would be a second testimony to a second generation. One generation has seen God deliver them from the hand of Egypt, would bring them through that wilderness wanderings, but that generation died because of their unbelief. Their children, their grandchildren would go into the promised land, and they needed to hear again from Moses why that was important and what God instructed them to do. So Deuteronomy is all the words of Moses, and it records for us at the end his death, and now the mantle of leadership falls to Joshua. The next book in the Old Testament is Joshua. It's the account of going into the promised land. We've probably most familiar with that first, first account of once, once they cross the Jordan River, and God provides a miracle there, holding back the waters. They cross on dry land, just as their fathers and grandfathers' generation had done from the Red Sea. Now God does a miracle for them to bring them into the promised land. And soon they find themselves encountering God's plan for the first city, Jericho. We know the story there, right? The walls of Jericho would come down, not because of a massive onslaught of attack, but because of the marching around the city and God's power again revealed. And from there, they would go into the promised land with instructions that they were to overtake the promised land to claim it as the rightful heirs from the promise that had been given their forefather Abraham. And so now the book of Joshua records for us many of the battles, not all of them. We have much of the early part of the movement into the promised land and the battles there from, from Jericho to Ai. And then the latter part of the book is about the battles at the end of the time of Joshua. And we finish the book of Joshua with the death of Joshua. And the great words of Joshua, what, what a great man of character. He's one of the, I think, one of the often overlooked individuals of the Old Testament. What a great man of, of character and, and faith he was. And we remember his words given to his people. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Whether you will serve the gods of your forefathers in the land of Egypt or whether you will serve the God of the Canaanites. Choose who you will serve. But me and my house, we have made our choice. We will serve the Lord and him only. And what great words that echo today, a very, a very great truth to our generation. The book of Joshua closes, and now we see Israel in the promised land, but scattered. Remember, they've been given their assigned portions of the promised land, and each tribe was given a assigned portion. But they have found themselves now in a place where they are no longer following God's statutes and his commands, and they find themselves living in a land where they are ruled or overseen by judges. So the next book in the Bible is the book of Judges. Judges are rulers. They are local rulers. We might call them governors. They oversee a territory of a certain people, but not the entire land of Israel. And they will live this way for 300 plus years. The book of Judges records for us the accounts of 13 judges by name, but particularly some individually and the details that go with them. And what do we find in the book of Judges? The people turn their back on God. And then they fall into judgment. And they're being overthrown by another people group, another Canaanite people group. Or the Philistines, in some cases, are still bothering some of the groups. 
and they cry unto God, deliver us. We repent of our sin. And God raises up a deliverer, a judge, who will lead and overthrow to provide freedom again for the people. And they follow God for a while. A while meaning a generation or two or three, but you know how it, how it happens. They fall back into their same sin. And the cycle happens over and over again. It's the same story all through the book of Judges. And the, the condemnation of Judges is every man did that which was right in his own eyes. They weren't seeking to follow God's will. God had given to, him, given to them the Pentateuch. He'd given them the, the examples of Moses and of Joshua and of Caleb and of others. They'd sought not to follow God's will. They did what was right in their own eyes. That's very much a testimony of today's world, right? So as a result, they find themselves now needing and wanting to have some type of leadership. So we go from Judges, the time of the Judges, which also includes uh, the time of, of uh, Ruth. The, the account of Ruth is in that same time frame. Uh, you also then go to the time when the people cry unto God, we want a king. And God had established the, the prophets and the judges to be those, those influencers in the land. But the people had said, we, will, we want a king. We want to be like other nations. We want a king. That was not really God's plan, but it was not God's will for them to have a king, but it was in his permissive will, but not in his perfect will. He said, you want a king? You select a king. Or I will select a king, and, and, and there will be a king over you. It will be the man Saul will be the one who's chosen. And Saul was the man who started out well. He had a heart, it seemed like, for his, his role. He realized what a unique position this was, to be a king in the nation of Israel, to draw the people together. But Saul has his complications. He runs into poor decision-making. He runs into conflicts he doesn't know how to handle. Most of all, what Saul does is he takes matters into his own hand. Unlike those who had guided him, uh, particularly Samuel, he did not seek after God. He thought he could take it all in his own hand, make his own decisions, use his own counsel to pursue what would be done in leading this nation and protecting them from the enemies. Saul even got to such a low point, he sought the counsel of a witch. You may know the account recorded for us in 1 Samuel, the witch of Endor. He got to a point he went to the occultist to seek what to do and turned his back on God. That, of course, brought God's judgment upon Saul, and Saul would, Saul's life would end in the battle or as a result of the battle with the Philistines. He would take his own life, having been wounded. Uh, he saw there was no need for him to, to be captured by the enemy, and so he took his own life, fell on his own sword. And from that point on, of course, the, the mantle would pass eventually to David, who had already been anointed. Samuel had anointed David, of course, as a young man. And we know the accounts given to us there in chapter 18 of Goliath and the way in which David proved his faith and God's blessing upon him to deliver from the Philistines. And now David steps into this role to be the king. It, there's a little process to that. It doesn't happen with, a, with, with one event or two events. It's a process. But eventually David becomes king, and of course Israel now will see some of its greatest days as a nation. David's life, too, has many positives to it, but it also has a negatives. We think of the event with Bathsheba and the results of that. We think of many conflicts within his family. Uh, one of his own sons tried to overthrow David to become the king. David had lots of issues. He had lots of family issues. Uh, but he, too... Desiring to follow God often found himself making poor decisions because he thought he knew what was the right thing to do. 
Well, you start talking to this, and after a while you go, hey, that sounds just like me. <laughs> I do that kind of stuff. And I start making decisions without seeking God's will. And we learn lessons from these lies. We should. David, of course, will, will pass. In his passing, the next king has already been de designated to be Solomon, David's son from Bathsheba. And Solomon will step into that position with an offer from God. Solomon, what will you have me to do for you in this role of king? And Solomon asked the Lord, give me wisdom that I may know how to rule this people. How great a task is this? I need wisdom. And God was pleased with that request and did bless Solomon. Israel will go on to greater heights of power, influence, safety, and security under Solomon's leadership and God's blessing. The temple will be built in Jerusalem. The first temple, it's called, or Solomon's temple, where now as a nation they have a place where they can come and fulfill the role of the sacrifice and the feast that were to be done in Jerusalem. And that continues even today, as, as Jews today will still obviously go to Jerusalem uh, for the fulfillment of following those feast days and, uh, and in remembrance of the sacrifices which are done. And of course, there's prophecy about that too. We won't go into that, but there's prophecy about the new Jerusalem and the fulfillment of how Jerusalem is being, going to be reconstructed for that role. Uh, but I'd again, save that for another time, another set of lessons. So here's where we catch up Israel. Uh, and some of the things we can say about them. Saul, the first king. David, the anointed as a youth to eventually become king. What a, what a uh, unique opportunity he had. But again, he had his problems too in that role. Solomon, anointed with wisdom. And yet his life ends somewhat foolishly. Solomon, we'll talk about this later. We're going to come back to the writings of Solomon. Solomon gives us great insight about life. In the book of Proverbs, much of that is from Solomon's hand but also the book of the Song of Solomon and the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, all from the hands of Solomon, and great life lessons that can be gleaned from that. So we'll, we're not done with Solomon yet. We're going to have to come back and talk about him. Upon Solomon's death, the, king, uh, the kingship should have passed or did pass for a moment to his son Rehoboam. And we'll, we're going to be introduced, introduced to Rehoboam and the decisions he made, which are somewhat foolish, and the consequences that came from that. Tonight we're going to spend a little bit of our time here in the next, uh, you know, few moments looking basically at a summation of four books that most people don't run to very quickly. Uh, these are books of the history of Israel through the kings that were served in the kingdom. First and second kings and first and second chronicles we know them as. You, your Bible may say this, 1 Kings, and you turn over and you find 2 Kings. You turn over and find 1 Chronicles and a subtitle below it, or above it maybe, where it says, are also called the third book of the Kings. 2 Chronicles, you look through its subtitle, it may be called the fourth book of the Kings. These four books as we know them in our Bible today are all the history of the kings of Israel and what happened over the centuries that would follow both David and Solomon's reign. So we're, we're going to kind of clump them together. We're not going to look at them chapter by chapter. That's a long study for sure. And we're certainly going to not involve many details. So let's pick up the account first by the most important event that is recorded for us in 2 Chronicles, and that is the book of, um, the account of Solomon's death. You go to 1 Kings, you have the story of King Solomon, or Saul rather, followed by David and the accounts of David's 
world, and then you get Second Kings, and you start to get some of that Solomon, and you get all these kind of intermingle. Many of the accounts of the king, the book of the kings and the book of chronicles overlap each other. So, you, so if you're in your Bible, you probably have a footnote. If you read something about somebody in 2 Kings, you'll probably go to a portion in 2 Chronicles that may parallel and give us more information about that. So these four books together are really kind of historical oversight, and they do overlap quite a bit. So let's catch up this account. Solomon dies, and Solomon slept with his fathers. Biblical way of saying he died and was buried in the city of David in Jerusalem, his father. And Rehoboam, his son, Solomon's son, reigned in his stead. So Rehoboam, who we haven't been introduced to yet, steps up to be the next king of Israel. That was the lineage of the kingdom that was established through the family of David and Solomon. So let's introduce ourselves to Rehoboam, the new king. Rehoboam is recorded for us in the account of 1 Kings there in chapter 12. Uh, upon the acknowledgement of Rehoboam as king, the elders of Israel came to him, the leaders of Israel, the different tribes came to him and said, Rehoboam, to summarize it, we're excited for you to be our king, your father Solomon, a great king, and we look for great things from you. But we have an important request your father put so much burden on us, basically taxes. None of us know that account, do we? Basically, Solomon was putting such high taxes on the people that when it came time for Rehoboam to become king, they thought, now here's our opportunity. We will come and ask him and pledge to him our loyalty, but please give us some relief from this. We need some economic assistance here, right? So he was asked very directly. And he said, I cannot answer you on this. I don't know enough to give you a good answer. Let me go ask my counselors. So Rehoboam goes to two sets of counselors. The first set of counselors are those who were the advisors to his father Solomon. They were the older generation. What was their advice to Rehoboam? Rehoboam, you want to win favor with the people? You want to... Get them in your corner. A great political move, yes. Lower their taxes. I mean, who doesn't cheer for that, right? Lower their taxes. Relieve their burden. Let them know that they will have opportunity with you for economic success and, and growth. And they will have opportunities that they did not have with you. It's a great way to win friends and influence people, to borrow a phrase. That was his father's generation. He said, okay, I hear, your, I hear your advice, but let me go to my other set of counselors. These were men of his generation, a younger generation. His counselors said the exact opposite. No, Rehoboam, you've got to show them who's boss. They followed your father because he laid a heavy burden upon them and basically uh, kept them in line. The last thing you want is a rebellion. Keep that heavy line. Hey, even make it worse. Make it harder. Show them who's boss. Rehoboam took the advice of his fellow counselors. His decision was to indeed, he went back and said, basically, you think my father gave you a lot of burdens and taxes? We're working on even harder taxes for you, a more difficult. 
You will think what my father did was child's play compared to what we're going to do. Boy, that wins friends and influences people, right? Well, as a result, the people basically rebelled and said, we will not, we cannot follow him. This was part of God's judgment, too. It's kind of a two-sided part of that. His decision resulted in dividing the kingdom. Twelve tribes there were, but two of them would not follow Rehoboam. Ten of them, uh, I'm sorry, uh, ten of them would not follow Rehoboam. Only two did. And this was a dividing of the kingdom that God had already prophesied would happen. As a result, Rehoboam would rule the southern, what became known as the southern kingdom. The two tribes that said, we will follow Rehoboam, were Judah, one of the larger of the tribes, and Benjamin, one of the smaller. They're in the southern part of the land of Israel. They, be, they will become known as the southern kingdom. What does the northern kingdom do? The northern kingdom calls their own king. We'll introduce ourselves to him in the next slide. The northern kingdom, the other ten tribes, will now basically establish themselves as enemies of the southern kingdom. After all, this is a revolt. If we don't follow your king in the south, then we are enemies of the state. This created distrust. It created war between these two kingdoms. And there would be much conflict between them. It, don't compare it to the, the, the civil war of America, the north and the south. It's very different. Very different time, very different reasons, very different circumstances. But we talk about the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. What does the, southern, what does the northern kingdom do, rather? The southern kingdom establishes Rehoboam. We will follow him. The northern kingdom, and again, there's a lot more detail to this than I'm giving you. The northern kingdom selects a man named Jeroboam to be their king. Rehoboam's the new king in the south. Jeroboam was the other new king in the north. Jeroboam was an advisor to Solomon and was a well-respected advisor. You go back and read the accounts of Solomon's use of Rehoboam, and you find many great words said about him. However, he had a run-in in the political, um, the political events of the time, and there was an anointing of a prophet named Ahijah. And you read this account in, in 1 Kings, there in chapter 11. Ahijah will come across Rehoboam, seemingly a sort of chance meeting, and he says, oh, you are the Rehoboam. God has great things for you. You will be a, you will be a, you will be a leader Basically acknowledging that in the future he would be a king. And here is Rehoboam, not even of the house of Solomon. How can he be a king? And so we see that little account as a foreshadow of what's going to happen. But because of some of the political events of the time, and I suspect word gets to Solomon that Ahijah, a prophet, has anointed Rehoboam to be a king. Solomon will have no contenders for his crown. And so basically Rehoboam has to escape to Egypt for his life. You know, political events of the day, right? And so we find him leaving and seemingly disappear off the scene. But you know what the people of the north remembered? The people of the north remembered this event. And so they sent word to Rehoboam, indeed, the kingdom is split. Will you come be the king of the ten tribes here in the north? You are a trusted advisor to Solomon at one time. We think you'll be a good king. Rehoboam returns and indeed accepts that offer and is made king of Israel, the northern ten tribes, uh, there in, first, in second Kings, or first Kings chapter 12. So let's get some sense here of how this works out. 
Jeroboam, the other new king, comes, but he comes with a very different set of priorities than just someone who is going to be a new leader. Jeroboam, following the culture of the day, and maybe the part of the reason he was run away from Israel to begin with, he will allow idol worship, particularly in a place called Bethel. Now, in Hebrew, the word Bethel means the house of God. And in Dan, these were the places where worship had been centralized for the northern kingdom. And you know what Rehoboam established? It's okay to worship whatever idol you want to worship. What is he doing? This isn't just a spiritual move. Remember, this is a political move. He is trying to gather the favoritism of the people. Whether you're Jew or you're Canaanite, and we know there's a long list of Canaanite peoples, and they worshiped idols. In other words, he basically established what would be called an act of toleration. It's okay for you to worship your idol. Just be a loyal follower of me, your king. But this, of course, was not God's plan and not the intent of what God, in, what God wanted for his people of Israel in the north or in the south. This caused great division and accentuated the war that would be between Rehoboam and Jeroboam even all the days of their life. You'll see that comment given in 1 Kings, that these two first kings of the northern kingdom and southern kingdom were, were bitter enemies, not just for political reasons, but also because of spiritual reasons. You know, that, that becomes a very, set, a very muddied set of issues, doesn't it? It does in today's world. You know, the issue of the Middle East right now, we'll take a half step back into that discussion. What complicates issues of Israel and the Gaza Strip and the Golan Heights and the entire region there isn't just about political issues. It is greatly overshadowed by religious issues because, again, who's in the Gaza Strip, who's in the Golan Heights, Muslim concentrations. And there is a strong hatred between the Muslims and the Jews. That's part of what, of what we see that happen there. Again, that's part of what I'll bring into the very last lesson we'll do in November when we talk about that. So it's a political issue, yes. And there's a religious overshadowing issue that complicates matters for sure. But there was war between these two. Rehoboam will reign for 22 years. He will be succeeded by his son because, I mean, how do they do kings? The son of the king becomes the king. And it's just the lineage of that, of that hierarchy that's established in place. Probably in the back of your Bible, you have a map that looks something similar to this. Colors will be different and the labels will be different. But you can see, at least by the colors here, the two distinctive kingdoms. Different than Israel today, for sure. It overlaps into the land of Jordan there to the east of the Jordan River in other parts of that Middle East. But you see the idea of the northern kingdom there in the green, which will be called Israel, and the southern kingdom, which will be called Judah. And these two uh, subsets in their own kingdom, both, again, Jews, having a heritage they could all claim back to Abraham, are at war with each other. And the political issues and the religious issues become quite intensive, for sure. The condition of Israel is given to us in a few glimpses that Scripture commentates to us. Here's a good one, a good example. 2 Kings 17, 12. It's speaking of Israel. They served idols, whereof the Lord had said unto them, you shall not do these things. How many times had God said to them, you shall not serve idols? And they had great examples. Who were those idols? 
Well, I've mentioned them before. Let's get some imagery in our mind. Moloch is an idol of the Canaanites, half, half bull and half human. We find him referenced by name in Leviticus, 2 Kings, and in Jeremiah. Also, there was, I mentioned this feminine deity the last time we looked at this. The feminine deity is Ashtaroth. Ashtaroth of the Zidonians, she is called. She is talked about mainly through First and Second Kings. She is referenced in Judges, if you know how to read it, because in the Judges, it, calls, it talks about the groves, the tree standings that they had allocated as a place of worship of Ashtaroth. And I said last time when we were looking at the books of Samuel, we, we have a modern-day version of Ashtaroth, still worshipped today in much of the world, including the United States. Uh, Ashtaroth is modern-day mo, uh, modern um, Mother Earth. There's a lot of people today who worship Mother Earth, and they're worshipping a 21st-century version of Ashtaroth. Who was Ashtaroth? She was the Mother Earth version. She was in charge of fertility, she was in charge of the crops. She was in charge of weather. I mean, all those different things. And today, that same mindset finds itself in the modern century, in our modern 21st century world, as a worship of a feminine deity uh, today, Mother Earth. And certainly there's plenty of examples of that. We'll save that for another lesson, too. A third one is one that's familiar to many who read the Old Testament. That is the, the idol god Baal. Um, judges, kings, chronicles all mention the idol god Baal. You come to the New Testament and you find the name used Zerubbabel. And you hear that at the very end of that, the, the Baal. What, what was unique about Baal was there was a different version of Baal in every different culture you went to. So there would be a Baal of the different, the Baal of the city, the Baal of the tribe, the Baal of the country. There was a different Baal. Baal was a male deity who was also in charge of much of natural events. Uh, Baal is often depicted having a lightning bolt in one hand, uh, and he was the god of judgment uh, that would come from natural occurrences. And so again, these things just get new names and reconfigured into a 21st century world. We can find examples of all of them today in some form or fashion. The northern kingdom was entrenched with these. You can even go back to the time of the judges, and you will find there references to these particular deities uh, that are worshipped as idols. The northern kingdom, we can, what can we say in summary? Uh, the first king, Jeroboam, it again included the ten tribes, uh, the greater number. It would last for a total of 208 years. And altogether, there would be 20 different kings, and each king has their own story. But what we can say about all 20 is they were all evil. None of them did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. They allowed idol worship. They allowed uh, sacrifices to idols. Uh, they ignored God and his word. They ignored the traditions of the nation of Israel that God had given them through their lineage. And it all ends with a captivity of judgment that is brought on by the nation of Assyria. Sound familiar? In today's world, we have Syria. The Assyrian Empire at the time was much larger than the nation of Syria is today. And this account is recorded for us again in the books of the kings, how there came to be an invasion from the kings of Assyria, from the king of Assyria, brought his armies down, and they just invaded the land and took the people captive back to Assyria. And they would, over time, over the centuries that would follow, 
become intermingled with the Assyrian people. If you hear the phrase, the lost ten tribes of Israel, that's who they are. These ten tribes that were taken captive by the Assyrian army, and they were then taken into the land of Assyria. Assyria took control of the land, and over the centuries that followed, they just intermarried and intermingled with the Assyrians, so they are a lost, they have a lost identity. And uh, again, we have a modern-day version of a nation, Syria, a much smaller version, uh, the Assyrian Empire, though, at the time. This would happen, the first invasion would happen in 732 B.C., and the final concluding invasion, where they took control of Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom, happened in 722. So typically, in your history, you'll say the end of the northern kingdom happened in 722 by the Assyrian nation as they overtook the northern kingdom. And that was a judgment that had been prophesied. We got the prophets to deal with later, and we'll see how they fit into this picture too. So that's the northern kingdom. And this becomes what's called the Lost Ten Tribes, often called the Jewish diaspora. Diaspora comes into English uh, from a Latin word that means dispersion. They were dispersed all through the Assyrian kingdom, never again to know their identity or to which tribe their children and grandchildren would belong to. So this is the Jewish diaspora. If we were to take and chart down through these 20 kings, here's what we'd get. I'll give you a minute to write that down. I'm sure you want to have that. You can find this easy enough. Your Bible may have this in it. You can certainly find it on the Internet. You can see the years, and you can see how some comments. There is nothing good about any of those kings. Uh, they were all evil. They were all, in many cases, murderers. Uh, there is really something to be said that's true about the Middle East having a mindset of revengeful murder. That's all you can really call it. Even what happened from the Hamas group into Israel two weeks ago is a revengeful murder. It's a mindset that, that permeates much of the history of that region of the world. We'll talk more about it in other settings. Let's talk about the southern kingdom quickly, though, before we close. We'll, we'll reference them, too. The southern kingdom, remember Judah and Benjamin, they will be called Judah as their king, um, as their kingdom name. Their capital is Jerusalem. They retain Jerusalem as their capital. If you open the, when you open the New Testament, not if, but when you open the New Testament and you read the Gospels particularly, you run across the issues of the Samaritans and the, um, the uh, Jews of Israel. The Samaritans basically are looked down upon, upon by the Jews of Israel because they were the interbred. They were the lost purity of Israel. Who lives in Samaria and northern Israel? Well, those who lost their identity through their captivity in Assyria. So they had very little use for that. But Assyria, I mean, but Samaria is the capital, remains the capital. And uh, there's an identity there. There's conflicts, right? We, we see that echoed in Jesus' conversation with the, the Samaritan woman at the well. We see it engaged with other Samaritan references in the New Testament. It all goes back to this northern kingdom, southern kingdom. They had animosity for each other for generations to follow. There's nothing to compare to it, but at least we have a reference point that's somewhat similar, maybe, in small, much smaller scale, and that is comparisons between the north and the south. 
isn't there still a little bit of animosity between the North and the South? We, you know, we rail, we rail insults at each other and kind of smile as we do it. You know, yeah. Oh, they're just from the North. Bunch of Yankees, what do they know? You know, we, that still kind of permeates some thoughts and some conversations occasionally in the South. And so that, that carried on for generations, for hundreds of years, for centuries, that still is reflected in the gospel accounts when we read them. Again, won't go down to all the history of that, but it is a reference point worth noting. The southern kingdom, Rehoboam, will be uh, the king for 17 years. He would allow, again, idol worship. What does he do? You know what I believe he does? He hears of what, um, I, I said the southern kingdom, should be Jeroboam, uh, Rehoboam up there. Re, Rehoboam hears what Jeroboam has done in the north. Well, I can't let him out-political me, right? I mean, the politicians are always playing that game. I'm going to open up political support in the South by letting the people here worship idols too. So he follows a very similar pattern. And he establishes uh, a whole long lineage of kings, which for the most part are still those who will do what God does not want Israel to do or Judah to do. And you see some names here. Um, they will follow in their, their father's and forefather's footsteps. Um, one of, the, one of the interesting references here, uh, I put it on this because we, we hear this reference here um, quite frequently. Pastor Paul will use this reference. We are like King Jehoshaphat of old. Uh, the most positive and political of, one of the most positive and political in that sort of time frame where he would say, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. We've heard our pastor say that many times, and rightfully so. It's a good reference point. The southern kingdom, unlike the north, did have some good kings some godly kings. As you read through those chapters, you will see the scripture says, they did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord. What was that was right? They followed God's command. They reestablished a spiritual reference point for the nation of Israel. They reestablished laws that, in, that promoted the people's mindset toward how they lived and how they sought God's blessings. So there's a, there's a long list of those things. We can also say about the, the southern kingdoms, uh, Joash. There were some who were good in part of the time and not so good the other part of the time. Um, Joash, again, again, it's, it's political stuff. Very intriguing. There's lots of plots of murder and assassination. Uh, different things crop up in this that are just uh, very, very, um, uh, very typical in some ways of what we think about with kingdoms and kingdoms uh, and, and kings, rather, even through the centuries that would follow in Western cultures. Um, so I won't take the time to read through all of these uh, names that sometimes we're familiar with. Uh, Uzziah, one of those uh, good kings, again, who would reign for 52 years. But he himself would later be judged in, later in his life because of the way he turned against God uh, with leprosy. So there's a long list. Uh, 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 and again, fighting continues. You've got North Israel fighting South Israel. You've got North Israel continuing to, to fight, fight their enemies. You've got South Israel confiding their enemies. And the, the northern kingdom, um, again, has gone into captivity for its end. What happens to the southern kingdom? Well, some things we could say in summary of them. Rehoboam, their first king, and including those two tribes, will last for 344 years. Remember, the northern kingdom lasts for 208 years. The northern kingdom outlasted quite a bit. Why? Well, many people will say because God blessed them. There were good kings who sought God's blessings and sought to turn the people in the, in the light of God's word. 
And so God blessed them and allowed them to have a longer time. But eventually their sin too would catch up with them. And they would be captured by, in captivity, by the Babylonian Empire under King Nebuchadnezzar. Again, to know the, a little bit of the history, it's a little bit of the current situation. Who is the Babylonian in, Empire? Babylon. The, the, this is the Iraqi um, and Iranian region of the world. Uh, the Babylonians that will capture the southern kingdom to also because of judgment. Again, the southern kingdom has 20 kings also during this time frame, but some of them are good. Let's look at that list. There's that list. Those that are in yellow would be considered good, even great, in what they did during their reign. And so many historical and biblical commentators will say God blessed the southern kingdom with a little bit longer existence, but they too will come into captivity. The captivity is a time when Babylon will come over to the southern kingdom, and they will, um, they will capture the last king of Israel, Zedekiah, the southern kingdom, and they will take the people into captivity. We know the names of some of the people they take into captivity. We know a few names very well, Daniel being one of them. Daniel is one of those ones in his young generation taken over to captivity to serve in Nebuchadnezzar's court and his three friends, right? We know some of that account. We read in the book of Daniel of that. So think of what has happened now in a period of some 350 years, approximately 350 years. The northern kingdom and southern kingdom once united were a great kingdom under the leadership of David and then later Saul, uh, Solomon. But that kingdom would be divided once Rehoboam steps in and the division will weaken both kingdoms. What really weakens them though is that the rulers were evil. All of them in the north were evil. Most of them in the south were evil. And that judgment that God would send came only after the prophets. Again, we haven't got to the prophets yet. We'll see how they fit into this picture. God would send the prophets to say to the northern kingdom and to the southern kingdom, turn back to God. And if you don't, judgment awaits. Prophet after prophet would come. And we'll look at, we'll, we'll take the prophets and divide them. You can divide the prophets also. Some of them are no, northern prophets. Some of them are southern prophets. And we'll divide them up and see what their message was. But basically, it was always turn back to God. God is calling you back. You have his word. You have his principles, his commandments. Your forefathers followed God and were blessed. Won't you follow God and be blessed? There's a lot of practical application from the principle of following God and being blessed. But in that period of about 350 years, Israel will go from this, from this influential, very powerful, and very wealthy nation to being divided, to being conquered, and to being dispersed. The difference is that when we continue the storyline, this is where we'll pick it up next time, when we, consider this, when we can pick up the storyline, it's going to be the storyline of the Babylonians in the captivity. And particularly the end of the captivity. There comes a time when the Jews that were in captivity of Israel, uh, in Babylon will now come back to Jerusalem, and they will begin to rebuild and reestablish themselves in the land of Israel, or in the promised land, as we'll also hear it referenced. 
and they will come back and return to that. So we're going to, pick, we're going to keep following this historical timeline. So next time we'll talk about Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. All of them happened during this time frame, and their books record events during the time of the captivity, and particularly following the captivity to get the Jews back to Jerusalem. And as we do that, we're really heading toward the very end of the Old Testament in the events. Now what we're going to do is we're going to step back after that and look at some of the books we missed. We've got to talk about the books of the writings. Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes. We've also got to talk about the prophets. So we'll put the prophets together and do one night on them and see how they fit into this picture. But let's get the historical timeline in place, and we'll finish that, uh, Lord willing, next week as they come back from captivity, and we'll see how that structure is built. Again, keep in mind, the Old Testament, once you get past the book of um, the Chronicles, the books of Chronicles, once you get past them, then things become a bit jumbled. They're not, they're not exactly in chronological order. And so that's why it's important for us to see the book, and I'll, and I'll give you a chart next time and sh uh, before we finish and show how the books line up in chronological order. And by the way, if you're Bible shopping, you will find chronological Bibles. A chronological Bible takes these events and puts them in place so that you're reading an event of 1 Kings, and then you jump to 2 Chronicles, and then you read something in 2 Kings, and you read something in 1 Chronicles. It just puts it in chronological order all the way through the Old Testament particularly. And so that's what a chronological Bible tries to do. Uh, the tradition of books and the order we have is just that tradition. And we've sort of held on to that over the centuries and the generations. But it is a way in which we can understand the Bible a little better. So next week we'll, we'll work that. And actually, in many ways, chronologically, we'll finish the Old Testament. And then we'll come back and catch those other books and other topics that will come with it also. Let me remind you before we close tonight, uh, again, we're always mentioning and praying for the Appel family as, uh, and uh, their work as missionaries over in the South Pacific and the labors in which they're doing there. A very faithful family and I'm very thankful to, that we support them, and, uh, and we keep up with them very regularly through their newsletters and things they're sending. So uh, the box out there, and you can just simply put the Appel family on there to go and support them, and you can see there are a multitude of kids and uh, all the things that they're doing in life. But I'm thankful for, for Jed and uh, Amy, great couple for sure, and we're thankful to support them. Well, I hope you have a great evening and a great rest of the week. Hey, by the way, keep in mind, two weeks from today, time changes. All at one time, uh oh. <laughs> So that's what's going to happen in two weeks. So keep that in your mind, too. And look forward to the week ahead. I hope you'll be back Wednesday as we'll talk about history of the Bible and Saturday for the fall festival. Let's pray as we close. Father, we're thankful today for your word. It gives to us insight, history, uh, records of accounts of people who made good decisions, godly decisions, and the resulting blessing that came from that. It also records for us those who made selfish decisions, sinful decisions, short-sighted decisions, and the judgment that came from that. Help us to learn those lessons. Help us as individuals, as families. Help us as a nation. There's so many principles that we see in Israel that are in, in very true today in our own country. And we see the principles that are played out in this historical conflict that we're seeing uh, played out before our eyes in Israel today. And I pray that you'll, uh, again, help us to be confident in our faith and um, uh, uh, excited to see that you have promised the end of all these conclusions, that there will come a time when we can look back on all this as just being history 
and what you did through it all. But we pray in the, in the moment of now for those there and again in Israel and the conflict and the battle. Protect the innocent. Preserve those who are there ministering and serving. We pray that you indeed will bring judgment to those to whom judgment is due and mercy to those to whom mercy is due by your great hand. I pray that you will do a work. We can't imagine. We can't even begin to comprehend all that you're doing, but we have confidence that you will do what is right and just in all situations. I pray that you'll bless our evening, bless our week ahead. May we be testimonies to you as, our, as Pastor Nick reminds us this morning, uh, not just uh, in, in faith and word, but also faith and action. May we live it out each and every day. For your glory we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Lord bless everyone. I hope you have a wonderful week.